Why don't we pray one more time together before we begin? Let's pray. Father, oh God, we, we come to you understanding how unworthy we are to render the praise that you deserve and the praise that you command. And yet, Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with praise, that you would fill our hearts with an understanding and appreciation and a savor of your majesty, that you would give us a vision of your majestic glory, that you would be exalted, Lord, in our lives, in our church, in our hearts, that you would truly be supreme, that you would be glorious to us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see that our lives are going to be lived one way or another, and that you desire for our life to be a reflection of the worship that is due to your name. And so help us, O God, to live worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's only two different reasons why we can come into the sanctuary and we can lift up our voice and we can praise and we can smile and we can clap and we can sing and we can worship and we can rejoice and we can sit here with one another with expressions of joy. And the only reason that that can happen is one of two reasons. Either it will be because we love His glory. We love His majesty. We love His holiness. We love who He is. We love what He has done. We love what God has done for us in Christ. We glory over the new covenant. Bring it to Hebrews. We glory over the things that we have seen and the things that we have read and the things that He has taught us in this book. And we respond with praise. So it's either that we glory because we love Him and we know Him and we rejoice in Him and He is sustaining us or we come in here and we sing and we praise because we are hypocrites. Because we do not believe what we are singing. Because we don't have any sincerity of love in our hearts for God. And therefore, it is deadly dangerous to come into the sanctuary and to lift up our voice and lift up our hearts and lift up our hands, some of us lift our hands, and clap and sing a shout for joy. But if we have no heart, brothers and sisters, we are hypocrites. And our hearts do not reflect what is coming out of our mouths. God always rejected that kind of worship. That is called perfunctory worship, meaning it's empty. Uh, it's, 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 it's a sound, but there's no substance. Meaning that there's a sight, there's a manifestation, there is a motion, there is a movement, but there is no reality within And don't you see that the new covenant is teaching us that in order to be in the new covenant and what it means for you to be in the new covenant is that we have the reality 
And that's what the new covenant is all about. It is bringing us to a place where everything has been internalized. The law of God has been written into our hearts. The blood of Jesus has cleansed our conscience. The death of Christ has broken our hard hearts. By faith, we hear His voice. By faith, we enter into rest. The new covenant is telling us that what God's desire is for His people is to live in the reality of the truth of what genuine worship is all about. And therefore, we're looking here at verse 15 and 16 at new covenant worship. Very simple, but very profound and also very probing. Because it calls into question, do we have a reflection of the realities of which the new covenant is speaking of? Do we have that reality dwelling in our hearts by faith? Or are we like so many in this pretentious world? Are we simply putting on a smile, putting on a plastic face, coming to church, shaking hands, patting each other on the back, and then going right back out that door in the same fraudulent condition with which we came in. In other words, the Bible calls it that, that we have been laid bare before the one who sees and knows everything, the one, as Hebrew says, with whom we have to do. Because our hearts are open to him. Romans chapter 2 says, God will judge the secrets of men's hearts through Jesus Christ. God knows and requires that we have, we have truth in the inward parts. And that was the massive manifestation of truth that David came to realize as he came to a place of genuine contrition, genuine repentance in his heart as he suddenly realized how near and how eminent and how close the transcendent God of Israel really is. That the God who holds, as we sang, the ocean in his hand actually wants to be intimate with us in the most fundamental Mentally close and near and eminent way. He wants our heart. Isn't that remarkable? The God of all creation, the God of the universe, the omniscient, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God cares about the validity and the genuineness of a human heart. In the Old Testament, God speaks about the secret place, the inward parts, the place where no one sees, and that that is where God desires to dwell. Here, O oh Lord, have I made a dwelling place for you, cries the psalmist. See, the psalmist knew and was looking ahead to that new covenant age with all the externalities, all the outside, all the external Shows of ritual was going to be internalized into the worshiper's heart so that you replace and you fulfill all of those external visible rituals. You are the temple. You have an altar in your heart, if you would. You offer from your heart sacrifices of praise. 
question is, is do we offer those sacrifices with clean hands? Do we offer those sacrifices with with the worship that He requires? Or, as many false priests in the past, they brought strange fire before the Lord. God wants truth in the inward parts. That's what this is all about. I thought to myself, it's so easy, right? It's so easy. Because everyone sees you sitting there. Everyone hears you singing there. Everyone sees you clapping and lifting. But there's a sense in which no one sees you. Except God. And He sees the real you. He sees the real me. He sees and He tries the authenticity of our worship. And you can fill a stadium with 10,000 people or 100,000 people or a million people and it doesn't matter how loud the procession is. What God is wondering is, how's the heart? How's the condition of the soul? That's all He cares about. Brothers and sisters, that is all He cares about. Take away the instruments. Take away the lights. Take away the show. But we don't have much of a show, but you know what I mean. In some places, the worship service is conducted like a concert. Okay, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that as long as it's good theology. But what I'm saying is, somehow in the Christian church, we have come to the place where we have associated genuine worship with skillful worship. Somehow we've come to the place where we've associated genuine worship at all, or worship at all, with songs and singing. And that that's worship. And certainly that's a part of it. And then on top of that, we also may throw in preaching because you've heard pastors say, let's continue our worship with the preaching of the word. And that's right. But what Hebrews is telling us here is that in reality, brothers and sisters, our whole life is worship before the Lord. Which means God wants the totality of our life to reflect authenticity. He does not want fake Christians. He doesn't want people to put on a a plastic smile on their face and come to church and say everything is all right when in reality you just came out of a firestorm on your way to church. God wants our hearts to be genuine before Him. And He wants us to appreciate the grace that He has given us through Jesus Christ that makes it possible for you and I who are so prone to to, to being fake and being only surface-level Christians. He is so gracious, is He not? He is so gracious that in Christ He would give us the potential for authentic praise. Authentic worship. So that's what I want to look at with you today. I want to look at genuine worship. And what does genuine worship really look like? Well, number one from this text, genuine worship is rooted in redemption. So important because when you sing, when you praise, what should be optimum in your heart, what should be uppermost in your mind and in your heart is By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. 
by the blood of the Lamb. Because of His blood, because of His death, because of His cross, I am here. I can sing. I can, I can, I can repent before Him. I can come to the throne of grace. I can bring my offering again. Look at that little word. So what is point one built on? Verse 15 here in Hebrews. It's built on two words. You see them. Through Him. You see that? Through Him. The author was very careful before he just went ahead and began commanding the Christians what to do. Make sure you worship. Make sure you continually offer worship. Make sure you're giving continual praise, perpetual praise. It's very important, isn't it? But even more important, more fundamental, more foundational is this phrase, through Him. This little prepositional phrase the author said, I can't get to the rest of the verses unless I insert this little phrase first. Through Him. Which is to say, through Christ who is our mediator and because of Him, we are able to proclaim His glory. And aside from that, brothers and sisters, we have no right to proclaim His praises. We have no standing before God. We are not clean enough. We're not authentic enough. We're not real enough. We are not genuine enough. We must have the blood of Christ or we will always and only offer up strange fire to the Lord. And that's not what He wants. Uh, Look with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at... Quite a few verses today, but First Peter chapter two verse nine. You ready? This idea of through Him, genuine worship being rooted in redemption. He says in verse nine, "You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people." And now you have, and now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, if we did not receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus, we would not have the ability, we would not have the authority or the right to proclaim His mercy. We can take Peter's words as an exposition of this phrase, through Him. Through Him who is our mediator. The reality is, brothers and sisters, is that we have nothing apart from Him. What it means for Jesus to be our mediator means that apart from Him, not only do we have nothing, we can do nothing. We have no right. Uh, but, but, But now we know that in the new covenant we have a right. Go to chapter 10, verse 19 again. This is pivotal. This is monumental. This is it. This is the gospel in Hebrews right here. This is what all the Old Testament images and shadows that you hear me talk so much about, this is what this is all pointing to. You remember, God is making a way back in the garden when they broke the covenant with God and He sent them out of the garden. They did not have a way to come back. But God mercifully began to show and to reveal that there was a way There was a way. There was a way in. I think you see that with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. When the animals are split in half, they they create a path. And God passes through the path of of the mutilated animals with a symbol of torch and oven, blazing furnace, going through the way. 
that God had made. I think you see the same exact symbolism again in the Exodus when God makes a way through the path of death, namely the Red Sea, that God opens up and He makes a way for His people to go in. But ultimately, every way that God has made has been only preparing us and leading up to this way. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated, watch this, which He inaugurated uh, uh, for us through the veil that is His flesh. And so, again, even the temple, the temple as the priest goes through the veil is the way in And now we've arrived to the new covenant where we have the way, the truth, and the life making a way for us to God. And what is that way? The way is the path of death. The only way that we go in is because Jesus has gone through the way of death for us so that we can go and not die. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, certainly we will die. But he who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you cling to that? Do you think about that? I think of death all the time, especially being married to Trish. No, no, no. Let me explain that. Well, that could be taken in different ways. Trish is such a, I mean, she's such a faithful wife, first of all. But one of the reasons why is she has this, what probably in the eyes of many people would be this, morbid obsession with death because all the time she's talking to me about death here death there a death everywhere a death and so i'm constantly thinking about death and so sometimes i think about the day in which i will die what what will it be like what where will I take my last breath? Will I be laying in the hospital somewhere? Am I going to die if I go to the Middle East next year? I mean, how am I going to die? You know what, what really matters is not really how you die. It's what state are you in when you die. That's what matters. So regardless of how I die, as Charles Spurgeon said, so what if I die like a dog? The crown is on his head. And so the reason why he has hope is not because he's going to somehow avert death, but because even death could not hold him. And because we are united to him, Romans chapter 6, even though we have been buried with him through baptism, even if, as we have been united with him through death, we will also be resurrected with him so that if we die a death like his, we will live a life like his. And so Jesus, who is the way, who has walked the path of death for us, He opens up a new way, a new and living way, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him and through Him. He's the foundation. He's the basis. He's the me. That's what it means for Him to be our mediator. We should all be coming in here week after week, and as we open the doors of the church and walk in, the first thing we should think about is, Christ is my mediator. Christ is my mediator and not how good did I do this week or how bad did I blow it this week. Well, because Christ is your mediator, you are able to come in and do business with God. Because Christ is your mediator, you can come in and you can 
repent and by faith you can plead with the mercies of God and live by the grace of God because he is your mediator. But if we don't have that little prepositional phrase, brothers and sisters, we have nothing. Therefore, genuine worship doesn't even get off the ground without him. So it is through him Now, let's keep talking about the nature of genuine worship. The second thing is that genuine worship is persistently God-centered. You see that? You go back to chapter 13. He says, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. You see that? So a couple things there. It is persistent, and it is God-centered. I want to really, I want to point out, Three things. Notice in the new covenant worship is fueled by the mediator who never changes and it's all rooted in his grace. So that was the foundation and it's personal and it's corporate because he says the, uh, the, 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 the um, obligation is placed upon us by the imperative verb here where he says let us offer up. And then it is corporate because he's summoning the church to do this. Let us together as a people As a church, we all bear the obligation to offer up praises unto God. But notice also that this worship is persistently and utterly God-centered. Let us offer up continually sacrifices and praises to God. So in other words, a very fundamental point, but I think it's a point that we need in this day and age, of man-centered worship, of slapstick Christianity, as people have called it. But, but in the biblical worldview, everything is about God. I mean, everything. I think that was the most radical shift in my thinking as I came into Reformed theology and began to understand the the, the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of the glory of God, sola, soli dio gloria, all of those doctrines. For example, turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, because I want to show you where we get to is that genuine worship, when it is God-centered, what it is, is that it is all about Him, but it's also about who He is. Romans eleven thirty three. You see, in other words, you see what genuine worship. You see the God centeredness of worship. You see that from the doxologies in the New Testament. He says here in verse thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. That idea of unsearchable. The the the, the Greek word literally means you cannot trace the footsteps. You ever seen pictures of footsteps on the beach, right? And, and what this is saying is God's footsteps never end. They never end. His ways never end. It's inexhaustible. God is infinite, in other words. How unsearchable His judgments, how unfathomable His ways. So part of praise, part of genuine worship... And part of God-centered genuine worship is that we come beneath a transcendent God who is at the same time incomprehensible in certain degrees, or to a certain degree. 
He's incomprehensible because we are limited in what, to, in what God has chosen to reveal about Himself in Scripture. That's what theology is, right? Theology is a word that means study of God. But really, theology is study of God as God has revealed Himself in the Bible. That's where we're we're limited to revelation. In order for us to know anything about God, we have to come to Him to know that. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become His counselor, or who has first given to Him that He might uh, might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you sing like that? Do you sing like your singing is for God? Not for your spouse, not for your children to see, not for the pastors to see, not so that it sounds good in the sanctuary. Do you sing, brothers and sisters, in such a way that you know or you reveal and you reflect that your voice, the sound of your voice, even if you don't think it's pretty. That you're the force behind your voice, the passion in your voice, the zeal to sing the praises of God is because that singing is for Him. It's not for you. Not for me. The worst thing we could ever say after we leave a church is to ask each other, how did you like the worship? Who cares? It's not for you. It's for Him. The only thing we should be saying is, Oh God, did I give you the worship that you're due. Oh God, did I give you genuine worship? Did I sing with a heart that reflects the reality that I am singing to you? I'm not singing to a thing. I'm not singing to a movement. I'm not singing to a jingle. I'm not singing because it's a trendy song that everyone's singing. I'm singing to Almighty God. True, genuine worship is utterly theocentric. It is all about Him. And you know what happens in this passage of Scripture? As we reflect on the theology of the book of Hebrews, notice what, say, what he's, the language that he's using here is the language of the cultus of Israel, meaning the, meaning the ritual life of Israel where sacrifices going back to temple imagery were being continually offered up, where animals were continually slaughtered and a soothing aroma was continually to be burnt to the Lord so that he would regard it as a, soothe, as a soothing savor, a, a sweet-smelling aroma and now what Hebrews is telling me is that all of that and what Hebrews is telling us is that that whole ritual life that whole cultus that whole all of the institutions of Israel and the temple and the altar and the sacrifices and all of that has now been replaced by the Christian heart by your heart and my heart by the Christian Your life is now where the sacrifices of praise are offered up to God. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Theocentric worship also means that we worship God as He is and not as we regard Him to be. 
It, it means we worship God as He has chosen to reveal Himself to us, and we do not worship Him in ways that are philosophically appeasing or acceptable to us. In other words, that's why we read the Psalms. We read the Psalms because the Psalms remind us of the terrible judgments of God. We read the Psalms because the Psalms remind us of the terrible works of the Lord. We read the Psalms because the Psalms remind us That there is a blessing for the righteous and there is a curse for the wicked. We read the Psalms because the Psalms reflect who God is. He's not asking our permission if He can disclose things to us. He is proclaiming to us and telling us, this is who I am. you got a problem with God killing a whole people group, the Amalekites, wiping all of them out. And telling Israel, don't leave a single thing alive. You get a problem reading that verse and reflecting on that and saying, how in the world could God call people to do that? And you know what we should be doing? What we should be doing is, oh God, praise you. That you are a God of such holiness that what wicked people deserve is 10,000 Hiroshima's going off endlessly because of their treason against heaven so that every family on the earth should perish. Every tornado watch and tornado threat should result in Frisco being wiped off the map. That's what we deserve. But, oh, God is gracious. God is so merciful. His loving kindness endures forever. And from generation to generation, His mercy endures forever. We don't worship God only with the ideas in our head of the the thoughts of God that are acceptable to us. I like to focus on the love of God, people tell you. Really? Really? You know what's so terrible about that that I found is that the doctrine of the love of God is often used to sacrifice everything else about God. Well, I focus on the love of God. What does that mean? What about His holiness? What about His justice? What about His power, His wisdom? What about His sovereignty? Oh, don't you understand that we don't need you to, to reduce God to just being love But we need the whole God. We need every part of God. Why did God create the world? Why did God create all of mankind? The Bible tells us, for His glory. You see, don't you understand that existence, which fallen human wisdom and fallen human religion cannot comprehend, cannot explain, has been trying to understand for millennia that existence itself, all of reality, every aspect of what is metaphysical, everything exists for His glory. And I remember being a young Christian thinking, wait a minute, what about my glory? Right? Isn't that the human tendency? 
Isn't that the human heart's natural reaction to the glory of God or what we could even call the self-glorification of God is to say, what about me? Because what the Bible is giving us is a theocentric worldview. It's not an anthropocentric worldview where man is at the center. God is outside sort of just making sure that man's priorities are taken care of. No. The world is created for his glory. Redemption is for his glory. And nobody preached on that and spoke about that more than Isaiah, who said, we were created for his glory. We are saved for his glory. The manifestation of everything that God does, Isaiah says in Isaiah 48, 11, everything that he does is for his own glory. Therefore, he cannot share his glory with anyone. Matter of fact, the greatest goal of mankind, you ever wonder why are you alive? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Why do you exist? Why do you draw breath? The reason why you draw breath today is so that by the grace of God, you may come to see the glory of God one day. That's why. That's why Jesus, when he was interceding for his disciples in John chapter 17 and verse 24, maybe it, didn't, maybe it didn't hit you very hard, but for Jesus to pray this to the Father is very deep. When Jesus says, Oh, Father, I pray for these that they may see my glory. See, Jesus prayed that because he understood in praying that he is praying the most, the the highest. He is ascending the heights of religion. He is ascending the heights of why man exists, why we were created. What is this all about? Why do we go through what we go through? Why did God redeem us in the first place? It is so that you would behold the glory of God. Like the confessions say, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, forever and ever. You talk about God being good to us. Notice also this God-centeredness, how the author phrases it specifically. He says here that we are to offer up sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. You see that? Um, if you have an, 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 an ESV, then they've translated the Greek word homologeo. They've translated that as acknowledge God. Both are wrong. Um, the ESV acknowledge a little closer. The NASB um, thanks to God further away. The Greek word homologeo just simply means to say the same. It literally means to confess or to profess with your lips, okay? Uh, giving thanks is a different Greek word. I don't know why the NASB decided to go with that, but that's okay. I mean, thanksgiving is part of praise, and this is what this is all about. But what is it saying? What it's saying is this. What it's saying is that part of genuine worship is that we confess God's name, now, what does it mean to confess His name, to, conf- to, to profess His name, to say His name? Well, I think D.A. Carson had it right when he said that, that the name of God reflects all that He is. 
I think that's the best way you could say it. That in professing or putting upon your lips the name of God and saying God's name and, and, and singing Yahweh, Yahweh, or in proclaiming one of His titles, you are taking upon your lips all that God claims to be and all that God has revealed Himself to be upon your lips in praise. Matter of fact, this concept of the fruit of lips This actually goes back to Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And there what's going on is that Israel is being called to return to the Lord their God, knowing that only God has the power to remove sin and to rid them of idolatry, and that He alone can provide them the mercy that they need as weak and desperate sinners. Let me read it to you. Hosea chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take away, uh, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present to you, in other words, the fruit of our lips. So the author of Hebrews is quoting this. And then look at verse 3. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Don't put your strength in chariots and horses and military and human might. That's what horses represents. The idea that you can put your trust in in, in the NRA. That, That you can put your trust in your concealed carry permit. No, 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 no. None of that will save us. We know who protects us. We know where our life lies. We know we're in His hands. Don't go to anything else as the source of your deliverance. They will not save us. And they rid themselves of their idolatry. They knew that only God had the ability to save, to redeem, to protect. It's beautiful. It's marvelous. Finally, genuine worship is also expressed practically through good works. You see that? Oh, this passage is so... It's just so beautifully balanced and so instrumental for the way that we ought to live the Christian life. He says, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Isn't that amazing? No longer pleased with the sacrifices of the temple. No longer uh, pleased with the sacrificial system of Israel. No, no, no. What does God care about? Again, why is He pleased with these things? Because it reflects a heart that has been changed. A heart that has been changed is going to produce this kind of fruit. And so three things, three quick things that we should take note of regarding these sacrifices that please God. Number one, and this is very basic, but very needful for us today. Number one is the idea that Scripture says that as a Christian or person in Christ, we are called to be productive. Now, do me a favor and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The reason I take you there is because I won't take you to John 15, even though you can have that in your mind, because Isaiah, uh, John chapter 15 is what Isaiah... Excuse me. Yeah, that's right. Wasn't that right? John chapter 15 is based on Isaiah chapter 5 and other places. But in Isaiah chapter 5, it is all about the fact that God has basically done everything that needs to be done in order for His people to bear fruit. That's going to come home to us. Look at verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning His vineyard. 
My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So this is God singing over his people. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And also he hewned out a, a, a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce uh, good grapes. And it says, but it produced only worthless ones. Uh, actually, the vineyard is Israel, of course. And he says, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, when he says judge between me and my vineyard, he's saying judge to see if he has not done what is right for the vineyard. Look at verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. What's he saying? What he's saying is this. God did everything that was necessary in order to cultivate his people. Think about your own life. God has given you everything that you need in order to cultivate your Christian life. Has he not? He's given us books, preachers, pastors, churches, Bible software, Bible apps, smartphones, fellowship, Friends, family, he's given us safe environment. He's given us opportunity. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. God has given us everything that we need to be productive. And how is it possible that a Christian can be lukewarm? No wonder Jesus says, I will spew you out of my mouth if you don't bear fruit, if you're not hot zealous for God. Where's the zeal? I was talking to a good friend of mine, an older gentleman, and his, he's, in his, he's in his older days now. He's nearing 80. And he says, why is it that the older Christian get, the more zealous they don't become? Why don't they become more zealous with age? Why is it that they become more, uh, what's the word? What? Lukewarm, that's the word. (laughs) I was going to say unzealous, that's not a word. Dead! Boring! Bored! How can you be bored as a Christian? How can you be bored after everything that God gave us? If the new covenant, according to the book of Hebrews, if, if, if Hebrews is accurate, and of course it is, of what Jesus has done for us, look at what he has done. He's come as a Melchizedekian priest. In other words, he has a perfect priesthood. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He was a perfect mediator. He gave us a perfect covenant. His blood was perfect. He died a perfect death. He lived a perfect life. He rose again from the dead. He gave us His Spirit. He went up into heaven and He sat down at the right hand of God and said, all authority is mine. You're going to twiddle your thumbs in the kingdom of God? How? Unbelief. That's the only thing I can conclude. For my lack of passion. 
And I know I'm up here right now as the pastor and I'm screaming and I'm yelling and hopefully I'm making some sense and I'm passionate and I'm pleading. But what I'm really pleading for is Monday through Saturday when the sermon is over. Life goes on. Mundane things you have to do. Traffic, work, co-workers, family issues, issues in the marriage, with the kids, with the bills. And oh, how Jesus is so wise to warn us. Be careful that the cares of this world, because they are there, they are real, they are serious, they will overtake you at times. And Jesus says, be careful that the cares of this world do not choke out the Word of God so that you have no zeal left in your heart. No love for God. No passion. So Jude tells us, in the book of Jude, Paul or Jude, excuse me. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself there. Doesn't happen automatically, brothers and sisters. And to keep ourselves in the love of God means that we live lives that are productive. And, and, and here's, here's a real profound theological truth. Are you ready? He wants us to have good works. Right? Look at what it says. He says, not neglecting to do good and doing good and sharing Now, that word sharing, guess what? It's the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. And so what is he saying? He's saying don't neglect two things. Doing good, being productive, having good works, and sharing. Or maybe even a better word would be participating. Participating. Let me just give you some example of that because we're over time, but... Just to give you one, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to show you here that oftentimes these good works, oftentimes this participation was part of Paul's missionary journeys and missionary ministry. And a lot of times churches, they would neglect this part. And really in Philippians, for example, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says only Philippi actually helped him in his missionary journeys. Well, another example, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, of, a, of an exemplary church who engaged in good deeds and doing good and in sharing. And look at what we find here with the Macedonians. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Notice where all the glory goes. The grace of God, all the glory. Glory, glory, glory to God, not to man. All the glory to God. He says, that in a great ordeal of affliction, so they were undergoing some great affliction, probably persecution. It says, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Beautiful play on words there. Though they were literally stricken with poverty, yet they had a wealth. What was it? A wealth of liberality. In other words, they were generous even in their poverty. Amazing. For I testify that according to their ability, watch this, and even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Watch this, verse 4. Oh, you want to talk about a zealous church begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. Koinonia. Begging us, let us share with you in this. Let us participate. Let us fellowship with you in supporting the saints. And watch this, and this... not. And this, not as we had expected, 
But they, watch this, this is, maybe this is the key for us. This is, maybe this is how we're going to do it. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's it. Pray. Give yourself first to the Lord, which means commune with Him. Go to Him. Bear your heart before Him. Oh God, is there something you'd want me to be a part of? Is there some saint you would want me to share with in their time of trial to encourage? Is there somebody I can call this week to pray with them on the phone? You know, that's why God made phones, right? So that fellowship could happen on a smartphone. Prayer. It's like another sermon was about to come out. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father. Year after year, as we walk with you, my Christian life has been very short. 20, 21 years. I don't know how long. And I just feel the care of this world. I feel just the gravity of this world and its desire to choke everything out that I just preached. And I pray for your help. I pray for your strength. I pray, renew our commitment to you. Renew our passion for you, Father God. And help us not, for any reason whatsoever, no reason under heaven, that we would ever become lukewarm, devoid of good works, refusing to share, neglecting our spiritual well-being. But help us, O oh God, to do business with You, even as the Macedonians did, to give ourselves to You first, and then to give ourselves to one another. We ask that You would do this by the power of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.